Well, good morning. If you brought a Bible with you, turn it to Mark chapter 14, verse 12. We're going to continue our sermon series through the gospel of Mark. Everything that we've been singing about is about the Advent season is also everything that was defining why Jesus did what he did. Every miracle he did, everything he taught was about this hope that we call the hope uh, of the season of Advent. Before we get into the sermon, will you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would not waste our time, that you would teach us this morning what it means to have this hope define our lives. I pray that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that understand. Apart from you doing that, apart from your Holy Spirit, we're just the blind leading the blind this morning. So we pray that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here's a question. A question you probably should have the answer to. It probably will define everything in your life in one way or another. Here's the question. How do you know that God is for you and not against you? Pretty big question. King David in Psalm 56 verse 9 says this. This I know that God is for me. Now that statement might have incredible hubris, or it is the statement that's based upon something that God wants every believer to be confident of. This I know, that God is for me. I mean, how would you know that? Wouldn't knowing that solve so much in your life? <laughs> so many of the things that bring anxiety and anger and uncertainty and deteriorate relationships and families and economics, make futures in peril. Wouldn't it all change radically if you just had this confidence, the confidence that, that King David had? This I know that God is for me, for me, God, the God of the universe, the God who controls everything in the universe, created everything, and orchestrates everything according to his will is for me. Well, that would change everything. And we've seen that Jesus has been orchestrating everything so, so that the timing of everything, the timing of his death would leave a lasting sign, a remarkable picture that God is for us. That's what he's doing here in the action of the later chapters of Mark. We've seen it in other weeks that, that Jesus is the sovereign king who came for us, who overcame for us all the enemies of humanity, the greatest enemies including the enemies of sin and death. And who is coming again for us. Because God is for us. That's the remarkable picture that Jesus wanted to leave his disciples here in Mark chapter 14. And, and, and this remarkable picture happens starting in verse 12. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him... Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, this is a last-minute kind of decision. 
This would almost be like on the morning of Thanksgiving, somebody saying, hey, yeah, you, you, any idea where you'd like me to go buy a turkey and what you want to do for Thanksgiving today? That's kind of what this question is like. The, the Passover, which was part of the festival or feast of unleavened bread, lasted a week. Seven-day festival feast, and it was the biggest celebration of Israel's faith. Passover was the annual anniversary and celebration of the Exodus. That's what you read about in the book of Exodus. It's of God's redemption and God's deliverance from slavery and death in Egypt of of his people Israel. It was kind of like our 4th of July and Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year all wrapped up into one holiday for the for the, for the Jewish people. It happened every year, every spring, the same time we celebrate Easter, as it turns out, and there's good reason for that. We'll talk about that in other, under other Sundays. And just like we celebrate Christmas twice, you know, Christmas happens kind of for us on Christmas Eve, there's something kind of special, and then again on Christmas morning and Christmas Day, kind of two celebrations of one kind of festival. The celebration of Passover was like that. There were two high points. There was the Sabbath celebration of Passover, but then there was also the private meal that a family or friends would share together beforehand. And the process began when, just like this verse says, lambs were sacrificed. Now, just not anybody. You couldn't go out and sacrifice a lamb in your backyard. That's not what this is. Lambs had to be sacrificed by priests at the temple in Jerusalem a certain way and prepared a certain way for roasting. And so the family would purchase a lamb, a little bit like what we might purchase a turkey or a ham. They would purchase a lamb and prepare the rest of the meal. And that was observing Passover. So the disciples on this kind of the day of, hey, where do you want us to go and and, and prepare Passover? Where do you want to have Passover? And now it gets really strange. Jesus' answer to their question gets really bizarre. Verse 13, so he sent two of his disciples. Luke tells us that that's Peter and, and John. Mark doesn't tell us who. So he sent two of his disciples telling them, here's the instructions, here's what they do. Go into the city. Now here's the deal. Uh, Remember, they're staying outside of Jerusalem, up in the Mount of Olives, outside Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany. Go into Jerusalem, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Verse 15, he will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. You just think about the disciples. Okay. Did you get that, Peter? Yeah, I think I got that. What did he just say? Verse 16, the disciples left. Turns out they trusted Jesus had Even though this was so bizarre, uh, something worked out. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, according to the Old Testament, according to Daniel, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 16, verse 5, the Passover could be celebrated only within the city limits, only within the walls of Jerusalem. You couldn't do it in your hometown. You had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and you could only eat the Passover meal in Jerusalem. And so this would produce a massive influx of Jewish pilgrims. 
all over the world, really all over Europe, all over parts of Palestine, into Jerusalem each spring. And so the city would just swell to three or four times its normal size within the walls of Jerusalem. Just this massive amount of people, chaos, everything you think about when you think of what it would be like in a city 2,000 years ago just flooded with people, pilgrims from all over the place. I mean, where are they going potty? I mean, all those kinds of things. So, so Jesus sent two of his disciples to enter Jerusalem. And here's the plan, big plan, good plan. The first thing they're supposed to do is look for a man carrying a jar of water. water. Okay, got that. Now, that might not seem as strange to us, even though it is strange. It was not near as, it's not near as strange as us, to us as it was to them. See, by tradition in those days, in that culture, men carried their water in animal skins, and women carried it in jars. So to direct the disciples to find a man carrying a jar of water in the middle of Jerusalem during Passover, all the crowd, all the chaos, is like telling them to go to the MU football game during the biggest game of the year and look for a man carrying a red purse. (laughs) It's like that. Except Jerusalem's a lot bigger with a lot more people. It's the day of the Passover feast. It's last minute, and it is chaotic for everybody. And Jerusalem is big, and it's overcrowded with tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Passover pilgrims, not to mention the people that already permanently live there. But Jesus tells them to enter the chaotic, bustling, overcrowded city. And when they just so happen to see a man who at that point, as they walk into the city, just so happens to be walking by carrying a water jar, they should follow him. And it just so happens that eventually he'll go into a specific house. And the owner of that house, it just so happens, it turns out, will have an upper story room, large and well furnished. It'll have table, rugs, pillows, all the things they need, and ready for use. And it just so happens that the owner of that house will let Jesus and his disciples use it that night for their Passover meal. Even Jesus calls it my guest room. And so Mark, the author of this book we're talking about, we're reading, Mark writes this as he reported on so many miracles. He just sort of talks about it as it was fulfilled after Jesus healing the blind, after we've seen Jesus heal all kinds of people who were lame all their lives. We see him raise the dead. He's walked on water. He's calmed the storm. This is sort of like lifting a paperweight for Jesus to orchestrate these things. But it says in verse 16, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. All the details, it just so happened. So they prepared the Passover. Jesus is orchestrating everything. Even as an answer to a question, somebody else takes the initiative to raise. It's not even him going to them with this information, this plan. He's answering their question. He's orchestrating everything in the precise timing of everything in impossibly chaotic conditions. And by the way, as we read these kinds of things, we should always take comfort in this. Even in the chaos of our own lives, the sovereign Lord, Jesus, still orchestrates and accomplishes his purpose in perfect timing and precision, whether we can see it at the time or not. And we just need to trust him as the disciples trusted him. It says, so they went into the city and they did it as he said. Things turn out when we just trust him. But perhaps... 
even more so, there's something else happening here amazing that's part of a bigger story. You see, it just so happens <laughs> that this upper room that the guy with the water jar kind of walks into and they follow him to described here is probably the meeting place that will become the main meeting place of the earliest Christians. We'll see about it in Acts chapter 1, 13, Acts chapter 12, verse 12. If it is the same house and all, if not most all, biblical calories believe that it is, then it belongs to a woman whose son, she has a son who's young at this time, and his name's Mark. He'll end up writing this book. Something happens where he is brought into the story tonight, and he becomes part of the bigger picture, and a follower of Jesus, and a companion eventually of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, and well, that's the rest of the story. And so perhaps at this point, Mark himself, the author of, of this book, he enters the story, becomes a follower of Jesus, because Jesus always has the bigger picture. It's not just about preparing a lamb, is it? He always has the bigger picture because he is for us. And so Mark brought into the story, Mark knowing probably more than anybody the background, the backstory of this story, saw all this occurring just as Jesus predicted as an amazing thing. It certainly was amazing for him. But all this is not the only thing Jesus predicted, not the only thing that Jesus knows by his sovereignty. We'll just read on, next verse, verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve while they were reclining at the table. Now that tells us that, you know, bless his heart, Leonardo da Vinci got it wrong in the Last Supper. They're not all on one side of the table ready to take the photo, but they are at a table uh, that there's a rug on the floor with pillows, and the culture back in those days is that you would recline on your, your left arm, left elbow kind of thing, and you'd eat with your right, and that's what they meant when they were reclining at the table. That's to, kind of like the back room at Osaka. Uh, no, not really, but, but it, it, it says that it, it, they were reclining at the table, and he said, truly I tell you, one of you, here's a prediction, will betray me. One who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one, they said to him, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. Judas, surely not I. Verse 20, it is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now, they were all dipping bread into the bowl with him. What his point was is, using language, it's my closest friend. It's those I trusted the most. It's the one who is eating with me, who's dipping his bread in the bowl with me. He's the one who's betraying me. Because, see, he's been talking about being betrayed all these days, ever since back in Mark chapter 8. They just had no idea that it was going to be one of the twelve who did it. The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term for himself. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. A scary verse. See, despite the fact that the Old Testament predicted in several places that Jesus would in fact be betrayed by his his closest friend, and suffer a sacrificial death. Judas is still, Jesus says, still responsible for his betrayal. Even though it was written about thousands of years ago. See, though, this is one of many Bible passages that at the same time affirm God's sovereign orchestrating of events and also concurrently at the same time simultaneously human freedom and responsibility in those events. I don't understand it. You don't either, but that's just how it works. There's lots of things we don't understand. 
and we don't have enough time to get into it now, but uh, we talk about it in our discovery class some second week. I think it's interesting that it's not obvious to the other disciples that it's Judas. They have no idea who it is. It says something about the fact that there's nothing, Judas talked like them, walked like them, did like them. There's nothing that give him, gave him away. They have no idea it's him. It says something about, I think you can look like a Christian for a long time and never be one. But then Jesus does something even more astonishing. Verse 22, just reading the next verse. While they were eating, in the process, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all, Judas included, drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now, we don't, we, we've read this verse so many times, if you've been coming to church, and he, this is not a new verse to you, you've read this a lot. To them, all this is absolutely stunning. What in the world just happened? Not stunning so much to us, but it for sure would have been to the disciples. This would have been a jaw dropper. And the key to understanding what just happened is to understand the context of what is happening. While they were eating, it says in verse 22, Mark says, while they were eating. Eating what? The Passover meal. Well, what's the Passover meal? Why was it called Passover? Well, you you know the story, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, or if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, or perhaps if you've even read your Bible, over 1,400 years prior to this time, this time with Jesus and his disciples in the Passover meal, 1,400 years earlier, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites, right? You know that. And they started to actually kill their baby boys because they wanted to reduce their population. They were growing too much as far as population goes. They started killing their baby boys. They wanted to destroy Israel's identity. So God, who had chosen the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, that's why they're the sons of Israel, the people of Israel, God who had chosen Israel as his people intervened. You know, he appeared to Moses. You've seen that. You've read that. He appeared to Moses and sent Moses to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let his people go or face God's wrath. So Pharaoh, you know the story, refused, and God began to send what the Bible calls ten plagues, these, these judgments of God. They were milder at first, but as Pharaoh hardened his heart, the judgments, each by one by one, grew stronger. So that eventually, one night, God sent the final plague, a destroying angel of death, it says. He sent the final plague against Egypt as a judgment for their sins. And this judgment of death would fall on every household, every firstborn in every family in Egypt, in every home in Egypt, both Jewish and Egyptian, not a distinction, in every home in Egypt, Jews and Egyptians alike, the firstborn in every family would die under the wrath of God's judgment against sin. There would only be one way to escape that. The only way for your family to escape God's judgment, God's justice, was to put your faith in God's sacrificial substitute. Namely, you had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost outside as a sign of your faith in God's sacrificial provision. 
So in every home that night in Egypt, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. One or the other. When justice came down, either it fell on your family or you fell under the shelter of the blood of the lamb. One or the other. If you took the shelter of this substitute, this sacrificial death of the lamb, then God's judgment of death passed over you and you were saved. That's why it was called Passover. And that night when the destroying angel came in the middle of the night because so many people had died in Egypt that night, Pharaoh came to the point where he realized God is God, he cannot fight God. And so he stopped resisting. He called for Moses in the middle of the night and he told the Israelites to leave. Sometimes we have to get to the same point before we stop resisting God. And every year since, every spring, on the anniversary of their Passover, the anniversary, therefore, of their exodus from Egypt, 1,400 years before Jesus was born, the Passover meal was observed. It had to be prepared in a certain way. There were a distinct menu that had to be served. It included four cups of wine that provided four points at which the presider, usually the head of the household, explained the meaning of the feast and why these elements were significant. So the presider would use the words from the Old Testament to bless the elements. Each time, give thanks for the elements, bless them, the bread, the wine, the herbs, the lamb, explaining how they were symbolic reminders of various aspects of the exodus their captivity, their slavery, and their exodus. And so like living poetry, this was their way of being taught God's deliverance from death and slavery and his redeeming them out of slavery and his promise to take them to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. They had to repeat that every year through this meal and through the elements of the meal divided by the four cups. Now, eventually the third cup, the cup of redemption came at a point when the meal was almost completely eaten. And that's where we are here in this story, in this meal, with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was the presider at this Passover meal. And so Jesus introduced the third cup, the cup of redemption. And we have to just imagine now, after these disciples all their lives going through this written script of how the elements of Passover are taken and eaten and how it's a reminder of the Passover lamb and the exodus and all this stuff. Imagine the astonishment of the disciples when, after blessing the elements in the traditional way, Jesus then departs from the ancient script and shows them the bread and the wine and says, this is my body. This is my blood. What? What? Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. Jesus is saying that the earlier exodus and all the earlier sacrifice lambs at the Passover were always pointing to him. Always about him. That Passover was a sign, a picture, a symbol of a kind of a living poetry of who Jesus would be and who he would, what he would do for us. That's why the Apostle Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
Now, there's a lot to say here that we would be interesting. It'd be good for a lecture sometime. We've got to move on with the sermon. Mark adds in verse 23 that they all drank from it. Now, don't just pass by that. The all echoes throughout the remainder of this chapter 14. They all drank from it, verse 23, but then they all fall away, verse 27, and they all fled, verse 50. See, it's not going to end good with that word all. There may have been only one traitor at this meal in the formal sense, but by dawn this night, All the disciples will betray Jesus, if not from greed like Judas, then from weakness or from fear or from cowardice. And it is, in other words, the Lord's Supper was not only for the worthy, but precisely for the unworthy, even cowardly and unfaithful followers. Not for the deserving, but for the undeserving. It's a sign that says, even in our sin, God is for us. There wasn't one person at that table, it turns out. When you read the rest of chapter 14, there wasn't one person at that table that was worthy of that supper. So Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. They knew what he meant by that. This is a promise of the covenant secured, symbolized, and guaranteed by my blood. He does not demand that we do reparations. He does not demand that we do penance in some kind of way. He's the one that provides the forgiveness, and he's the one that fulfills and guarantees the covenant itself. It's a covenant between God and us, and he does both parts. He gives it, and he fulfills it. But Jesus made one more astonishing prediction here. Not just the predictions we've seen that went just as he said, but as we read on in verse 25, he says, I tell you the truth, again, pointing to this sign, this symbol, this picture of the bread and the wine, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And Matthew adds in his gospel that he says, I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Mark omits that. Truly, I tell you, that day is coming. He's not just redeeming us from, he's redeeming us to. Not just from sin and death, but to his kingdom forever. That's the whole point. Just like with all Jesus' other predictions that happened, just as he said, this will happen, this day will happen, just as he said. Now, we're all a bit jaded, right? What's considered truth comes and goes from generation to generation. The truth, scientific truth 100 years ago is laughed at today, right? I mean, a lot of it is. Even scientific truth five years ago in some ways is laughed at today, Don't eat this, it's bad for you. No, it turns out it's good for you. No, change your mind, it's bad for you. Well, who knows, just don't eat too much of it. Everything changes. Philosophy changes like the fads of fashion. Everything changes and we've become oversold with truth claims. Oversold with what people believe is the truth and we've become cynical, we've become skeptical, we've become jaded. But Jesus says, truly, I tell you, communion, the Lord's Supper, this bread and this wine is Jesus' sign. This 
will happen, just as I told you. But it's not just a prediction. It is, and it's an amazing one, but it's not just a prediction. See, in ancient times, when somebody used that language, when someone would say, I'm not going to eat or drink until blank, until such and such, they were making a solemn oath. It's, for example, in Acts chapter 23, uh, when some people get mad at the Apostle Paul because of the gospel and they want to kill him, the way they express it is they're not going to eat again until the Apostle Paul is killed. That's a blood oath. In biblical times, this kind of oath was taken very seriously and was literally marked with blood. This oath meant you were making a covenant, a solemn relationship of obligation, like signing a contract today. You know, today, a signature is a sign. That's why the word sign is in that word signature, signature. If we sign a document... By that sign, we bind ourselves to its words. What the pages say, we say. That's what the sign of a signature signifies. That's what Jesus is doing here with this sign. The bread and the wine is Jesus' solemn oath of blood to us for us. His signature on his contract with us, his promise to us that this day will happen. His signature on his contract with us, for us, signed in his own blood. And because of his death and resurrection on our behalf is its guarantee. He will bring us to this feast that symbolizes his eternal kingdom if we take his sacrifice for us. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, has a a chapter, in fact, on, on this passage. And he has a very helpful description at the end. I thought it would be good just to read it instead of trying to paraphrase it. Let's just look at it here. There's a few slides of it. Just read it. He says this. He writes, if you put seeds... Just stick with it. If you put seeds into a pot of soil and then pull it away in the dark, away from the sun, the seeds go into dormancy. They can't grow to their potential. But if you bring the pot with seeds into the presence of the sun, all that has been locked within them bursts forth. The Bible says that everything in this world, not just we human beings, but even the plants, the trees, the rocks, is dormant. These things are just shadows of what they have been, would be, and will be in the presence of their creator. When the Lamb of God presides over the final feast and the presence of God covers the earth again, the trees and the hills will clap and dance, so alive will they be. And if trees and hills will be able to clap and dance in the future kingdom, picture what you and I will be able to do. The Lord's Supper gives us a small but very real foretaste of that future. Imagine you were in Egypt just after the first Passover. If you stopped Israelites in those days and said, who are you and what is happening here? They would say, I was a slave under a sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and escaped that bondage, and now God lives in our midst, and we are following him to the promised land. Now, of course, they were picture was very different. But he says that is exactly what Christians say today in a much more ultimate way. If you trust in Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, the greatest longings of your heart will be 
satisfied on the day you sit down for that eternal feast in the promised kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying this is a sign of. How do you know? (laughs) Jesus says, "How how, how do you know whether or not he's telling the truth? Well, he gave us a sign. How do you know that God is for you? Well, Jesus gave his disciples a sign. Here's how you know God is for you. Here's how you can have the same confidence that King David had in Psalm 56, verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. How do you know? Because Jesus says, this is my body. Take it. This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many. Jesus gave us a sign of his promise. It's a living kind of poetry, but we have to take it. Now, not literally. It's symbolized in the, in the literal taking of the bread and wine, but we take it in faith. We have to take it. It doesn't just happen because he did it. It happens because as we take it. Jesus is your exodus if you take him as your Passover lamb. So Jesus says, truly, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of of the vine again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a sign that that day is coming just as he predicted. And he is going to come and he is going to take us to his feast, his table, and everything that that symbolizes in the Bible forever in his kingdom. I love how verse 26 kind of ends this passage. It says that when they had sung a hymn, they went back to the Mount of Olives. You know, it's kind of weird to think. After all this that Jesus said, that he kind of, you know, turn in your hymnals to Psalm 59. That, 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 you know, what kind of voice, that, you know, Jesus' disciples singing, blah, 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 you know, what kind of voice did he have? I don't know. It's kind of funny to think of them singing a hymn after all this. And yet, it's such a great, important picture for us. It's part of how we take it. Part of how we take his promise, if Jesus sang a hymn, How much more should you and I, as we take this promise and make it a truth in our heart in ways that only music and poetry and singing can express? There's something about how we're made. There's something about who we are created in the image of God that something happens in the taking it through singing. That's why we sing. That's why Jesus sang. That's why they sang a hymn after the Lord's Supper and went back home to the Mount. Well, they didn't make it home. Jesus was arrested. So when you come forward this morning, you're taking the sign. The sign of the Passover lamb who truly, he tells you, on that day he will have this with you at his feast forever in his kingdom. So when you come forward, you just take a piece of bread and you dip it either in the wine that's in our hand or if you prefer grape juice that's on the stool. You don't need to say anything, but we're going to say something to you to remind you of the sign. If you prefer gluten-free bread, if that's a need of yours, over in that corner over there, there's a gluten-free line. 
It's kind of hard to get there, especially if you're over here. Good luck, but you'll make your way through the crowd, just like Passover in Jerusalem. You'll make your way, and it'll be messy, and you know, we'll have to learn things of kindness. But then you'll make your way there, and you'll eventually make your way back, and that's part of it. It's Passover. If you want to give to the needs of the needy in our community, every, all the money that goes in those baskets with the white cloth, all that money goes into a separate account that is used to meet the needs of those in need in our community. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your sign. We thank you for this bread and this wine that is a sign that you, this is your body. This is your blood. You are our exodus. You are our Passover lamb. And so we come and we take it in faith. Not perfect faith, Faith that fails at times. We come with trepid humility because our faith is imperfect, but we come and we take it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.